recorded live. Hello, this is William Fink, and this is Crystal Getting It Saturdays. Today is Saturday, November 29, 2014. Praise Yahweh, the God of Israel, and thank you for listening. This is going to be part 20 of our presentation of Martin Luther and on the Jews and their lies. I never imagined beginning this presentation that it would last for um, 20 segments. It'll probably end up being 22, 23, 24 by the time we're done. There's also some um, biographical material and some history running up to the 30 Years' War, which um, the, the Protestant Reformation was, was the catalyst of which happened sometime after Luther's death, practically a hundred years, I believe. The um, Thirty Years' War, in, in my opinion, the Jews had gotten control of the papacy sometime before Luther with the Borgias and the De Medicis. And the Thirty Years' War, in my opinion, was... Crypto Jewry's effort to maintain control of the German people and the North Europeans. That's my opinion. We started this series November 30th, 2013. <laughs> After tonight, we will take a hiatus from it for several weeks, so it probably won't be completed for some time, some time yet. We will commence now with chapter 11 of Martin Luther's On the Jews and Their Lies with some opening comments. I'm sorry, chapter 12 tonight. We will begin chapter 12 tonight. From chapter 11 of Martin Luther's On the Jews and Their Lies, we have seen the great reformer plead with the princes of Germany to run the Jews out of German society entirely. Luther describes how Jews had long been poisoning the wells and food supplies and kidnapping and murdering Christian children in Europe, playing doctor and poisoning people rather than actually curing them, things which, along with many other horrible crimes, they had been doing in Europe for several centuries. Luther explained how the Jews had come to exert a great degree of control over European society through the practice of usury and how they bragged about it. He also explained that they were able to perpetrate such crimes for so long because they were a class protected by the German princes themselves. Luther explained how the official protection of the Jews as alien parasites feeding off of the body of Christians afforded them the opportunity to undermine Christian society. And they took full advantage of it. Luther explained Jewish religious and civil treachery in death and how the Jews consistently ingratiated themselves with the princes and governments of Europe because the Jews 
who were able to extract large sums of money from Christian society were in turn donating or actually using as bribes large portions of their ill-gotten gains to the governments that protected them so that they may assure their own continuance or the continuance of their own racket. Jewelry is indeed the world's longest-running criminal racket, and Martin Luther exposed them for what they were and what they still are to this very day. As the solution to the Jewish problem in Germany, Martin Luther had advised that the synagogues and schools should be burnt, that the houses of the Jews should be razed and destroyed, and that they should be forced to live in the open or in crude shelters like the gypsies, that all of their prayer books and Talmudic writings be taken from them, and that Jewish rabbis be forbidden to teach under penalty of death. Luther advised that all safe conduct for Jews on the roads of Germany be abolished, and that they would then have no advantage over Germans traveling those same roads, who did not have any special protection. Luther advised that all currency and precious metals taken from the Jews, and that they be barred from usury, most importantly. Finally, Luther advised that Jews be forced to work at honest and hard labor, as most Christians are accustomed to doing. Of course, the satanic Jews would decry as persecution any attempt to put them on an equal footing with Christians. The signal proof that Martin Luther was right about the designs and the intents of the Jews the signal proof that Martin Luther was right about the nature and the treachery of the Jews lies in the fact that his writings against the Jews are virtually unknown to this day, and that modern members of the Lutheran Church are actually offended when they ever become informed about their own reformer. The signal proof that Martin Luther was right is found in the very existence of Adolf Hitler, who was the first German leader to actually attempt to implement Luther's policy since the Thirty Years' War. The signal proved that Martin Luther was right lies in the fact that Adolf Hitler and all those who sympathize with him have been demonized while we see Jews at the top of every international corporation and at the right hands of governments everywhere. That proves Luther was right. History will one day be taught properly. And it will be learned that ever since the death of Martin Luther, every war fought by white men had been fought so that the Jews could either come to control or so that the Jews could maintain control over the white nations involved. Martin Luther was wrong about the identity of the Jews. As most Judaized Christians remain 
uncorrected to this very day. And therefore, the Jews have been able to continue deceiving Christians. Now, because of the treachery of the Jews, our once Christian society is well down the path to destruction. Now the Jew can never be extricated from society without its complete destruction. Now it should be no wonder to, to real Christians that, as the Apostle Peter had warned, the heavens and the earth, which are now, by the same word, are kept in store, reserved unto fire against the day of judgment and perdition of ungodly men. Sometimes the house gets so many damn termites, it's easier to just burn it down. Don't even call the exterminator. With this, we shall commence with chapter 12 of Martin Luther's On the Jews and Their Lies, written in 1543 where he starts off by explaining that the Jews are beyond making excuses for themselves, that they have no defense, ostensibly because he has now exposed their treachery, intents, and designs, and informed Christians everywhere of the same. I wonder how, what Luther would have thought if he realized that nobody was going to listen. It will not do for them to say at this point, we Jews care nothing about the New Testament or about the belief of Christians. Let them express such sentiments in their own country or secretly. In our country and in our hearing, they must suppress these words or we will have to resort to other measures. And Luther's argument here is based upon what he has learned that the Jews really say about Christians and about Christ and about people related to Christ in their Talmud. And he goes on to say, these incorrigible rascals know very well that the New Testament deals with our Lord Jesus Christ, God's Son, while they claim to be unacquainted with its contents. My friend, it is not a question of what you know or what you wish to know, but of what you ought to know, what you are obliged to know. As it happens, not only the Jew, but all the world is, about, is obliged to know that the New Testament is God the Father's book about his son, Jesus Christ. And, of course, Luther, having a thoroughly Catholic background, was indeed a universalist. Whoever does not accept and honor that book does not accept and honor God the Father himself. For we, we read, he who rejects me rejects my father. And if the Jews do not want to know this, then, as I said, we Christians do know it. Thus, if we ourselves do not wish to stand condemned by their sins, we cannot tolerate that the Jews publicly blaspheme and revile God the Father before our very ears by blaspheming and reviling Jesus our Lord. For, as he says, 
he who hates me hates my father also. And Luther has rather consistently displayed an understanding throughout his paper of the biblical precept that by accepting sinners, one was giving approval to their sins as well, and thereby becoming just as responsible for them as the sinners themselves. Paul explained as much in Romans chapter 1, and John also in his second epistle, and we will cite those pericopes later on. Since as Christ said, no one gets to the Father except through him, other religions have no validity whatsoever, and Christians are taught to perceive all non-Christians as antichrists. At least that's what they're taught by Scripture. Of course, that's not what they're taught in their Judaized churches. The mere respect of other religions is idolatry. And Luther goes on to say, similarly, we cannot tolerate their stating openly and in our hearing that they have no regard for the New Testament, but look upon it as a pack of lies. This is tantamount to saying that they care nothing for God the Father and regard him as a liar. For this is God the Father's book. It is the word about his son, Jesus Christ. It will not avail them but rather prejudice their case if they plead ignorance or rejection of the book. For it is incumbent on all to know God's book. He did not reveal it to have it ignored or rejected. He wants it to be known, and he excuses no one from this. And Luther fell short of the realization that the Jewish denials of the Messiah by themselves prove that the Jews are devils. The Apostle John warned of the Antichrist in his first epistle, and he said, These things I have written unto you concerning them that seduce you, just like the serpent seduced Eve. Then in his second epistle he wrote, For many deceivers are entered into the world who confess not that Jesus Christ is come in the flesh. This is a deceiver and an antichrist. And of course, the revelation in chapter 20 informs us that it is the devil who would attempt to deceive the whole world. And John, in 1 John, the apostle wrote, they went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would no doubt have continued with us. But they went out that they might be made manifest that they were not all of us. Not understanding. Nor seeking to understand. The history of the Canaanites and Edomites in Judea in the intertestamental period, Luther seems to have missed the significance of these words of John entirely, and we will return to his comments. It is as if a king 
and he's modeling his argument here after one of the parables. It is as if the king were to instate his only son in his place and command the country to regard him as its sovereign, although he would also be entitled to this right by the right of natural inheritance. And the country as a whole readily accepted him. A few, however, band together in opposition, alleging that they know nothing about this, despite the fact that the king had, in confirmation of his will, issued seal-in letters and other testimony. They still insist that they do not want to know this or respect it. The king would be obliged to take these people by the nape of the neck and throw them into a dungeon and entrust them to Master Hans, who would teach them to say, we are willing to acknowledge it. The alternative would be to keep them incarcerated forever, lest they contaminate with their refractory attitude others who do want to learn it. Well, that's, the gospel. that's what the gospel tells us, that they bar the way to heaven. They don't enter it themselves, and they attempt to prevent those who would enter from entering. That's what the Jew does. The reference to Master Hans was evidently Luther's model for a jailer expected to correct those who were committed to him. And he says, this is what God, too, has done. He instated his son, Jesus Christ, in Jerusalem, in his place, and commanded that he be paid homage. According to Psalm 2, verses 11 and 12, kiss the son, lest he be angry, and you perish in the way. Some of the Jews would not hear of this. God bore witness by the various tongues of the apostles and by all sorts of miraculous signs and cited the statements of the prophets in testimony. However, they did then what they still do now. They were obstinate and absolutely refused to give ear to it. Then came Master Hans, the Romans, who destroyed Jerusalem, took the villains by the nape of the neck and cast them into the dungeon of exile, which they still inhabit and in which they will remain forever or until they say, we are willing to acknowledge it. And Luther's theology, we believe, is wayward because Christ never said that his enemies would be converted. The fallen angels were bound in chains of darkness awaiting the judgment of the great day when they would be tossed into the lake of fire. That's what they're waiting, conversion to ashes. Luther has confused various prophecies dealing with the children of God and the enemies of God because he insists upon seeing the Jews as the children of God when they are truly his enemies enemies. And the gospel from its very inception was to separate the wheat from the tares. As the, John the Baptist said, the axe is already laid to the root of the trees. Christ himself foretold of the Roman destruction of Jerusalem, which Luther refers to here, and he said that it was 
because these are the days of vengeance by which all the things written are to be fulfilled. Woe to those having conceived and to those with sucklings in those days, for there shall be great violence upon the earth and wrath for this people, even those with sucklings. There's no room here for repentance. There's no chance here for conversion. For there shall be great violence upon the earth and wrath for this people. And they shall fall by the edge of the sword, and they shall be taken away captive into all nations. And Jerusalem shall be tread upon by the heathens until the times of the heathen should be fulfilled. The true children of Israel were already dispersed 700 years before this among those heathens, which were the very nations of the ancient pagan world. And they had nothing to do with the Jews. Only a small portion of a few tribes in Israel remained in Judea, along with the Canaanites and Edomites, who had usurped the kingdom. Christ told those who rejected him, as it is recorded in John chapter 10, but you do not believe because you are not my sheep. Jude, the apostle, was speaking to true Christian Israelites when he wrote, For there are certain men crept in unawares, who were before of old ordained to this condemnation. Nobody among the children of Israel was ordained from old, to condemnation. In fact, the scripture says that all Israel will be saved. And here Jude tells us that there are men who crept in unawares who were already ordained to condemnation. Ungodly men. Turning the grace of our God, not their God, our God into lasciviousness and denying the only Lord God and our Lord, not their Lord, our Lord Jesus Christ. The Jews are the descendants of those accursed Canaanites and Edomites who had infiltrated ancient Israel and again infiltrated Judea. As Paul called the Edomites vessels of destruction, so were Luther's Jews and so are the Jews of today. Luther simply did not see it. A lot of these mainstream Christians, they want to believe that Christian identity it is an upstart theology, that it's novel, that it was recently invented. That's not true. Christian identity is the religion of the apostles. We understand because we've examined scripture and history and archaeology. We understand the true nature of the Jews, who they are, where they came from. Those certain men who crept in unawares, they're not Israel. We understand that. We are the original Christianity. It is not our problem that Christian predecessors were blind to these truths for so many centuries. We are not the upstart religion. It is they who have diverted, who have digressed, who have made a left turn from the teaching of these apostles. 
back to loser. We can respect him even if we don't entirely agree with him. And we should respect him. God surely did not do this secretly or in some nook or corner so that the Jews would have an excuse for disregarding the New Testament without sin. As we noted above, he gave them a reliable sign through the patriarch Jacob. Well, that's not true. He gave that sign to Israel, not to the Jews. Namely, that they could confidently expect the Messiah when the scepter had departed from Judah. And we cannot agree with Luther's private interpretation of Genesis 49.10. His heart's in the right place. But unfortunately, his interpretation is an error. Or when the 70 weeks of Daniel had expired, and of course Luther's understanding of Daniel's 70 weeks prophecy is entirely correct. Or for a short time after the construction of Haggai's temple, but before its destruction. And sadly, neither can we agree with Luther's rather ignorant interpretation of Haggai chapter 2. And he goes on to say, he also informed them through Isaiah that when they would hear a voice in the wilderness, as happened when the scepter had departed, which, well, we'll gloss over that part. That is, when they heard the voice of a preacher and prophet proclaiming, Repent, the Lord is at hand, and is himself coming. Then they should be certain that the Messiah had come, referring to Isaiah chapter 40, verse 3, and that is good, but the prophecy of Isaiah was obviously fulfilled in John the Baptist, as Luther points out, who was also a subject of the prophecy in Malachi chapter 3. There are two prophetic witnesses to John the Baptist, and probably more. Shortly thereafter, the Messiah himself appeared on the scene, taught, baptized, and performed innumerable great miracles, not secretly, but throughout the entire country, prompting many to exclaim, this is the Messiah, John 7:41. And of course, Christ was declared the Messiah in John chapter 1, and in John chapter 4, and elsewhere. John 4, 2, we have to make a, um, a note here. John 4, 2 explains that Christ himself did not baptize with water, but that his disciples did. And Luther quotes John, he paraphrases John 7:31, and says, When the Messiah appears, will he do more signs than this man has done? And they themselves said, what are we to do? For this man performs many signs. If we let him go on thus, everyone will believe in him. Referring to John 11:47, When he was on a cross, they said, he saved others. He cannot save himself. Should God concede that these circumcised saints, and that's a sarcastic reference, Luther Luther uses to refer to the Jews. Should God concede that these circumcised saints are ignorant of all this when they already stand convicted by the four statements cited, referring to Jacob, Haggai, Daniel, and David, all of which show that the Messiah must have come at that time. 
Several of their rabbis also declared that he was in the world and was begging in Rome, etc. And, and of course, Luther's referring to the lies of the Talmud and attempting to use them against the Jews. <laughs> Excuse me. As we explained at great length in the earlier parts of our presentation of Luther's work, we cannot agree with Luther's interpretations of Genesis 49.10 and Haggai chapter 2, or with his persistent attempts to keep Judah's scepter and the line of David's seed limited to the history of Palestine in their fulfillment. Luther's lengthy explanation of 2 Samuel chapter 7 and as we pointed out when we presented that explanation, how he skipped over verse 10 of that chapter entirely. Luther explained the whole um, promise to David from 2 Samuel chapter 7 and skipped, he read from verses all around it and skipped verse 10 entirely. And verse 10 explains that the people... 2 Samuel 7.10 explains that Yahweh would move his people. Moreover, I will appoint a place for my people Israel and will plant them that they may dwell in a place of their own and move no more. Neither shall the children of wickedness afflict them anymore. And that's a full indication that they would not remain in Palestine where David was when those words were spoken to him. And Luther skipped that verse entirely while explaining all the surrounding verses. And that is by itself a testimony to the providence of God and his admonishments concerning the blindness of true Israel. However, Luther did well in other areas, and especially when he indicted the Jews with Daniel chapter 9, proving that the Messiah had to come before the second temple was destroyed in 70 AD, and challenging them, therefore, to identify that Messiah. With this fact alone, Judaism is forever discredited, even though there are also many other prophecies in its support. Back to Luther. Furthermore, he saw to it that they were warned not to be offended at his person. For in Zechariah chapter 9, verse 9, he announced that he would come to Jerusalem riding on an ass, wretched and poor, but as a propitious king who would teach peace, who would cut off the chariots, steeds, and bows, that is, not rule in a worldly manner. And, and that's Luther's interpretation because he did not, it seems that he didn't really expect a second advent. As the mad Cocobites, these bloodthirsty Jews raised, and that this poor yet peaceful, propitious king's dominion should extend to the end of the world. That is, indeed, a very clear statement, setting forth that the Messiah should reign in all the world without a sword, 
with pure peace, as a king bringing salvation, I am extremely surprised that the devil can be so powerful as to delude a person to say nothing of an entire nation which boasts of being God's people into believing something at variance with this clear text. And you know, Christians have for a long time believed that Christ is king. And even we in Christian identity should recognize that Christ is king but not in a temporal sense. Because Joshua Christ refused to be made king at his first advent. And in Acts chapter 1, the apostles, after his resurrection, had asked if the kingdom would be restored to Israel at that time. And Christ said, it's not yours to know the times and the seasons. So certainly, we speak of Christ as king because we know that that will happen. But the sword and the chariots have not been cut off from Ephraim, as Zechariah says they will be. We have been fighting wars within within and without our own race for 2,000 years. We've had nothing but war from the time of Christ. The reference to the Cocobites is a reference to the followers of Simon Bar Kokhba, who led a revolt against the Romans, which lasted for about five years from 132 to 136 A.D. With the war of 65 to 70 A.D., whereby Jerusalem was leveled, and then the Kedos War of 115 to 117, the Bar Kokhba Rebellion was the third war of the apostate Jews against Rome. If Luther had read Zechariah 9, in conjunction with other Messianic prophecies, especially Malachi, and especially after that, Revelation chapter 19, he may have realized that there must be two manifestations of the Messiah, one to die in order to redeem his people, and another to conquer his enemies so that he may once again rule as king over the children of Israel. But it must not be forgotten, reading Luther, that he was greatly influenced, not only by universalist Catholic teachings of of a thousand years, but also by the converso Jews, such as Lyra and Bergensis. And therefore, his prophetic interpretations are Judeo-centric, Whereas the prophecies themselves, if we examine from the time of Daniel and the dispersions of Israel, except for the prophecies relating to the second temple and the remnant, from the time of Daniel and the dispersions of Israel, the prophecies themselves are Eurocentric. They're not Judeocentric at all, unless they refer to Christ, his persecution, and the remnant at Judea. The proof that they are Eurocentric is this. 
in Daniel's five kingdoms, the head of gold, the book of Nezar, Daniel states that explicitly, and all the kingdoms that followed him were to rule wheresoever the children of men dwell. And when we trace the history of those kingdoms and the history of the people that those kingdoms ruled over from Babylon to Media Persia to Greece to Rome, the epicenter of those people and the areas those nations, those empires ruled, moved from Mesopotamia to Europe. the revelation, the book of Daniel, and the subsequent prophecies, and the spread of the gospel, because Paul never wrote any gospel, the Hutus, Tutsis, Indians, Chinamen. All of those things are Eurocentric, not Judeocentric. And Luther's prophetic interpretations are all Judeocentric because he followed Jews. Europe was the place where the so-called lost tribes had been primarily, not entirely, but primarily dispersed. We still await the second advent described in Revelation chapter 19 and Malachi chapter 4, among other prophecies. And then, even though we consider Christ to be our king because only he is our righteous ruler, then Christ will be king when his enemies are destroyed, when the princes of this world are finally eliminated in the Holocaust that we owe them. Back to Luther. He faithfully forewarned them. Furthermore, not to be offended when they see that such a great miracle worker and poor king who had ridden in on an ass would let himself be killed and crucified. For he had proclaimed it in advance, Daniel 9.26, Isaiah 53.2, 52.14, and that is all good, that his servant who will startle the kings will be smitten and afflicted, but all of this will occur because God laid on him the sins of us all and wounded him for our transgressions. But he was to make himself an offering for sin, intercede for the transgressors, and by his knowledge make many to be accounted righteous. Such the text clearly states. But the son has never seen nor heard anything more disgraceful than the abuse of his passage by these blasphemous Jews. They apply it to themselves in their exile. And we shouldn't be um, surprised at this because the Jews have long believed that they are their own Messiah. And so far they've been pretty successful at playing it because they have put themselves in charge of the world. But that's only because they've been able to deceive Christians, and that's another story entirely. They apply it to themselves in their exile. At the present, we lack the time to deal with this. Alas, should they be the ones who were smitten because of our sin, who bore our transgressions, who made us righteous, and who intercede for us, etc.? 
There was never a viler people than they, who with their lying, blaspheming, cursing, maligning, their idolatry, their robbery, usury, and all vices accuse us Christians and all mankind more before God in the world than any others. By no means do they pray for us sinners, as the text says. They curse us most vehemently, as we proved earlier from Lyra and Bergansis, Luther following the Jews who write about the Jews. A huge mistake for Christians. Their great slothfulness and malice prompt these blasphemous scoundrels to mock Scripture, God, and all the world with their impudent glosses. This they do in accord with their merit and true worth. And Luther's absolutely right. His assessment concerning the Jews is right. It's a shame that he believed Jews could convert and ended up following converso Jews down the path to error even if they seem to be pious. Luther comes close here to identifying the Jews as the devil, and then he falls short. Yet Luther seems to be describing exactly what the word of Christ says in Revelation chapter 12. And the great dragon was cast out, that old serpent called the devil and Satan, which deceives the whole world. Luther admitted that the Jews deceived the world. He was cast out into the earth, and his angels were cast out with him. And I heard a loud voice saying in heaven, Now has come salvation and strength in the kingdom of our God, and the power of his Christ. For the accuser of our brethren is cast down, who accused them day and night before our God. What did Luther call the Jews? He said that they accuse us Christians and all mankind more before God and the world than any others. Luther might be saying one thing with his mouth, but he knows somehow some truth in his heart because he's describing the Jews and their behavior from Revelation chapter 12 to a T. He just won't go Saurus so far as to say that they're not Israelites and they are really devils because every Jew is indeed a genetic devil. And to continue with Revelation 12, speaking of the children of God, and they overcame him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony and they love not their lives unto death. Therefore rejoice, ye heavens, and ye that dwell in them. Woe to the inhabitants of the earth and the sea, for the devil is come down unto you, having great wrath, because he knows that he has but a short time. And when the dragon saw that he was cast out into the earth, he persecuted the woman who brought forth the man-child. And that would answer Luther's Inquisition as to why Jews persecute Christians. After the crucifixion of the king, back to Luther, God first presented the proper signs that this Jesus was the Messiah. Poor, timid, unlearned, unconsecrated fishermen 
who did not even have a perfect mastery of their own language. And here we must say that Luther accepted the Jews' slanderous assessment of the dialect of the apostles, in our purview, stepped forth and preached in the tongues of the whole world. All the world, heaven and earth, is still filled with wonder at this. They interpreted the writings of the prophets with power and correct understanding. In addition, they performed such signs and wonders that their message was accepted throughout the world by Jews and Gentiles. And, and we must refute that. Actually, their message was accepted throughout the world by Israelites in Judea and by Israelites scattered among the nations of Europe. Innumerable people, both young and old, accepted it with such sincerity that they willingly suffered gruesome martyrdom because of it. This message has now endured these 1,500 years down to our day, and it will endure to the end of time. If such signs did not move the Jews of that time, properly the Judeans of that time, what can we expect of these degenerate Jews who haughtily disdain to know anything about this story? And Luther somehow knew that the Jews of his time were mongrels and bastards, as, as he had called them earlier in this essay. And here he calls them degenerates. Being a universalist, I believe is the reason why he really didn't understand the implication of being a mongrel or a bastard. And he goes on to say, Indeed, God, who revealed these things so gloriously to all the world, will see to it that they hear us Christians preach and see us keep this message, which we did not invent, but heard from Jerusalem 1,400 years ago. Actually, a little more than that, no enemies, no heathen, and especially no Jews had been able to suppress it, no matter how strongly they opposed it. It would be impossible for such a thing to maintain itself if it were not of God, as the wise Gamaliel attested in Acts chapter 5. The Jews themselves, in their 1,500-year exile, must confess that this message has been preached in all the world before their very years, that it was assailed by much heresy, and yet survived. Therefore, God cannot be accused of having done all this secretly or in hiding, or of never having brought it to the attention of the Jews or of any other people. For they have all persecuted it, persecuted it vehemently and vigorously over these 1,500 years. And yet the blasphemous Jews opposed it so impudently and sneeringly as though it had just recently been invented by a drunkard who deserves no credence. They feel free to revile and damn it with impunity. And we Christians have to offer them room and place, house and home in the bargain. We have to protect and defend them all so that they can confidently and freely revile and condemn such a word of God. And by way of reward, we let them take our money and property through their usury. And Luther is correctly assessing not the duty of Christians, but rather the unwittingly 
rather unwittingly, the level to which Satan has had Christians deceived even at Luther's time, 500 years ago and longer. He should have seen the Jewish attitude towards Christians in the proper light of Revelation 12.12, where it says, For the devil is come down unto you, having great wrath, because he knows that he has but a short time. In the next paragraph, which we shall read momentarily, Luther admits that the Jews are children of the devil, and they are. However, then Luther takes it for granted that the Jews are the Israelites of the Old Testament, which betrays his conviction that parenthood can somehow be spiritual. Yet Christ labeled the Jews as devils by their origin and their race, and not merely by their religious persuasion. Once again, Luther, being a disciple of converso Jews, fell for the egalitarian trickery of the devil. The Jews claimed that God was their father, and that they were not children of fornication, John chapter 8. Those claims were refuted by Christ and by the warnings of the prophet Malachi, where the word of God identified those same Jews, forecast that exact attitude by those Jews and told us that they were the result of Judah's fornication, that they were indeed children of fornication because Judah married the daughter of a strange god. Back to Luther. No, you vile father of such blasphemous Jews, you hellish devil. These are the facts. God has preached long enough to your children, the Jews, publicly and with miraculous signs throughout the world. He has done so for almost 1,500 years now and still preaches. And, and it's evident that Luther's... Um, division over the identity and character of the Jews has caused him great duplicity in his interpretation of scripture and his addressing of the Jews. They're either children of the devil, they're from of the world, or they're children of God. They're born from above. You can't be both. No Israelite was deemed a devil for thinking the wrong way. All of Israel shall be justified and shall glory. And so Israelites can't be devils. The children of Adam cannot be devils. They might be Satan. They might be opposed to God thinking the wrong way, but they can't be devils. They can't be children of the devil. Speaking about the Jews blaspheming Christ, Luther goes on to say, he has done so for almost 1,500 years now and still preaches. They were still, they were and are, still are obliged to obey him, 
but they were hardened and ever resisted, blasphemed, and cursed. Therefore, we Christians, in turn, are obliged not to tolerate their wanton and conscious blasphemy, as we heard above. He who hates the Son also hates the Father. John 15, 23. For if we permit them, and this is where Luther does well, he, he, he has um, a virtual double personality in, in thinking that the Jews are Israel and the Jews are the children of the devil. He, he, he's almost confused. But here he does well, where he says, for if we permit them to do this, where we are sovereign, in other words, where Christians rule, and protect them to enable them to do so, then we are eternally damned together with them because of their sins and blasphemies, even if we in our persons are as holy as the prophets, apostles, or angels. And Luther goes on to make a Latin quotation, Kia faciens et consentiens paripoina, doing and consenting deserve equal punishment. That's a Latin proverb. Whether doer, back to Luther, whether doer, advisor, accomplice, consenter, or concealer, one is as pious as the other. It does not help us, and the Jews still less, that the Jews refuse to acknowledge this. As has already been said, we Christians know it, and the Jews ought to know it, having heard it together with us for almost 1,500 years, having beheld all sorts of miracles, and having heard how this doctrine has survived by nothing but divine strength against all devils and the whole world. Paul of Tarsus spoke of the Romans from the perspective that they were indeed to be counted among the descendants of the anciently apostate Israelites. And they were where Paul attested in Romans chapter 1 that they had the truth of God, but they changed it into a lie. And they did. Paul then spoke of the punishment of these people, the Romans, because they had forsaken their God, where he said, and just as they do not think it's fit to have Yahweh in their knowledge, Yahweh handed them over to a reprobate mind to do things not fitting, being filled with all injustice, fornication, greediness, wickedness, full of envy, murder, strife, treachery, malignity, slanderers, loud talkers, haters of God, insolent, arrogant, pretentious, contrivers of evil, disobedient to parents, void of understanding, covenant breakers, heartless, merciless, such as these who knowing the judgments of Yahweh, that they practicing such things are worthy of death, not only they who cause them, but also they approving of those who are committing them. 
When we approve of sinners, we approve of their sins. We become partners in that sin with the sinners. Luther did very well to understand that. Likewise, the Apostle John wrote in his second epistle, Who, whosoever transgresses and abides not in the doctrine of Christ. The old covenant was done away with. Yahweh died on a cross. As Daniel said, the sacrifices would be cut off. That Christ, the Messiah, would make the atonement for sin. The doctrine of Christ prevails in Israel. The Old Testament loses its force. So according to John, the way of righteousness was the doctrine of Christ. And if you did not abide in it, then you were a transgressor. That's why he says, whosoever transgresses and abides not in the doctrine of Christ has not God. There's no multiple paths of righteousness coming out of the Old Testament. There's only one, and that's Christ. The Jew trick that Islam and Judaism are legitimate religions of the Old Testament, that Jew trick is a lie. He that abides in the doctrine of Christ, he has both the Father and the Son. If there come any unto you and bring not this doctrine, receive him not into your house, neither bid him Godspeed, or neither speak to welcome him. For he that bids him Godspeed is partaker of his evil deeds. Those who reject Christ are transgressors and sinners, and when you even speak to welcome them, you become a partaker of his evil deeds because you've accepted an antichrist, because you've accepted a, well, today you've accepted one of the bastardized distant descendants of some transgressor. Because the Jews were not his sheep, as Christ had told them. And Luther misses that. They could not abide in his doctrine. Therefore, Christians should permanently treat all Jews as nothing but transgressors and not have anything to do with any of them. Luther did very well, understanding that the acceptance of Jews Because Christians doomed. By accepting Jews, Christians were doomed along with them. Ignoring these simple biblical precepts is the major fault and cause of destruction of Christianity today. When you embrace your parasites, you are doomed to destruction. How could men love cancer? And Luther says, this is certain, borne out by such an enduring and impressive testimony in all the world. 
that he who does not honor the Son does not honor the Father, and that he who does not have the Son cannot have the Father. The Jews ever blaspheme and curse God the Father, the creator of us all, just by blaspheming and cursing his Son, Jesus of Nazareth, Mary's Son, whom God has proclaimed as his son for 1,500 years in all the world by preaching in miraculous signs against the might and the trickery of all devils and men. And he will proclaim him as such until the end of the world. They dub him Hevelvoric. That is, not merely a liar and deceiver, but lying and deception itself viler even than the devil. We Christians must not tolerate that they practice this in their public synagogues, in their books, and in their behavior openly, under our noses and within our own hearing, in our own country, houses, and regimes. If we do, we together with the Jews, and on their account will lose God the Father and his dear Son, who purchased us at such cost with his holy blood, and we will be eternally lost, which God forbid. Presenting chapter 10 of Luther's essay, we noted that the term Hebelvoric is a curse by which the Jews label Christ, which seems to mean literally folly and vanity. Here, Luther defines it for us as lies and deception, and that's fine. It was apparently formulated through some perverted Talmudic permutations of Kabbalistic Jewish sophistry. To discover its meaning, however, Luther had to read the works of yet another converso Jew named Anthony Margarita. Who he actually mentioned in part 10 of his essay. And he continues. Accordingly, it must and dare not be considered a trifling manner, but a most serious one to seek counsel against this and to save our souls from the Jews, that is, from the devil and from eternal death. My advice, as I said earlier, is, as he enumerated here in part 10 of this essay, he, he will, um, I'm sorry, in part 11 of his essay, he will summarize now what should be done about the Jews, which Luther is saying will save Europe from the pits of hell, or at least Germany. Luther is basically saying that we must ostracize the Jews, put them out of their synagogues, their homes, put them out of public life, take their writings and their rabbis and, and ban them. Luther's saying that that must be done to save Europe from the pits of perdition. And he says first, that their synagogues be burned down, and that all who are able toss in sulfur and pitch. It would be good if someone also could throw in some hellfire, 
that would demonstrate to our God our serious resolve and be evidence to all the world that it was in ignorance that we tolerated such houses in which the Jews have reviled God, our dear Creator and Father, and His Son most shamefully up until now, but that we have now given them their due reward. Second, that all their books, their prayer books, their Talmudic writings, also the entire Bible, be taken from them, not leaving them one leaf, and that these be preserved for those who may be converted. For they use all of these books to blaspheme the Son of God, that is, God the Father himself, creator of heaven and earth, as we said above, and they will never use them differently. And here Luther seems to have imagined, and this is a huge mistake, that the Talmud may have had some legitimate religious use. And that is a grave error. Again, he professes that Jews may possibly be converted, and that is also a grave error. Nowhere does Scripture tell us that a wolf can be turned into a sheep. He says, third, that they may be forbidden on pain of death to praise God, to give thanks, to pray, and to teach publicly among us and in our country. They may do this in their own country or wherever they can without our being obliged to hear it or to know it. The reason for this prohibition is that their praise, thanks, prayer, and doctrine are sheer blasphemy, cursing, and idolatry because their heart and mouth call God the Father Hevelvoric. As they call his son, our Lord Jesus, this. For as they name and honor the Son, thus they also name and honor the Father. It does not help them to use many fine words and to make much ado about the name of God. For we read, you shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. Just as little did it avail their ancestors at the times of the kings of Israel that they bore God's name, yet called him Baal. Luther should have understood that it was the ancestors of the Jews who infiltrated Israel and lured the ancient Israelites into bow worship and other sins, as the scripture itself attests. Luther has modern Jews confused for Israel simply because the Jews claim that they're Israel as if they could tell the truth about anything. Fourth, that they be forbidden to utter the name of God within our hearing, for we cannot with a good conscience listen to this or tolerate it, because they're blasphemous and a cursed mouth and heart called God's son Hebelvaric, and thus also call his father that. He cannot and will not interpret this otherwise, just as we Christians, too, cannot interpret it otherwise. We who believe that, however, the Son is named and honored, thus also as the Father is named and honored, 
Therefore, we must not consider the mouth of the Jews as worthy of uttering the name of God within our hearing. He who hears this name from a Jew must inform the authorities or else throw sow dung at him when he sees him and chase him away. It's a shame Germans must have had sow dung at hand. And may no one be merciful, merciful and kind in this regard for God's honor and the salvation of us all including that of the Jews, are at stake. And, unfortunately, they were Luther's words. How could Luther imagine that the Jews had any salvation coming at all? Revelation 22.15 For without, for outside, excluded, are dogs and sorcerers and whoremongers and murderers and idolaters, and whosoever loveth and maketh a lie. That passage describes each and every Jew. It leaves no stone unturned. The propensity to hold out some hope that the Jews could be converted and then be saved has led Christians to be deceived by them again and again. Because Christians, for all of these centuries have covered for and defended the Jews in all their treachery, holding out the hope that possibly one of them could be converted. So the Jews have gotten away with everything they've done to Christians for 1,500 years because Christians believe that one Jew could be converted. In truth, the Jews are the problem. The Jews are the devils that Christians need to be saved from. The Jews aren't the biggest problem. Christians themselves are the biggest problem because they simply won't obey the word of their God. But the Jews are next in line. And if they, or someone else in their behalf, were to suggest that they do not intend any such great evil, or that they are not aware that with such blaspheming and cursing, they are blaspheming and cursing God the Father, alleging that though they blaspheme Jesus and us Christians, they nonetheless praise and honor God most highly and beautifully. We answer as we have done before, that if the Jews do not want to admit this or try to put a better face on it, we Christians at least are bound to admit it. The Jews' ignorance is not to be excused, since God has had this proclaimed for almost 1,500 years. They are obliged to know it, and God demands this knowledge of them. For if anyone who hears God's words for 1,500 years still constantly remarks, I do not want to acknowledge this, his ignorance will provide a very poor excuse. He thereby really incurs a sevenfold guilt. In truth, the people known today as Jews are obliged 
to hate God and to hate Christ and his peoples, all which are according to the word of God. From Revelation chapter 2, from verse 9, and these words were spoken after the destruction of Jerusalem because it can be demonstrated that the revelation was not recorded by John until the closing years of the first century A.D., until about 94 A.D. John was a very young man at the crucifixion and a very old man when his gospel and the revelation were penned. I know thy works, Revelation 2.9, and tribulation and poverty, but thou art rich. And I know the blasphemy of them which say they are Judeans or Jews and are not, but are the synagogue of Satan. Fear none of those things which thou shalt suffer. Behold, the devil shall cast some of you into prison that you may be tried, and you shall have tribulation ten days. Be thou faithful unto death, and I will give thee a crown of life. Luther can't have it both ways. Luther admitted that Jews were responsible for the persecutions of Christians. He showed that understanding several times during this essay. Luther associated the Jews with the devil. But why did Luther stop there? Why did he not believe that those same Jews who persecuted Christians and who had basically boasted about being in command of Germany at his time, why did he not believe that those same Jews would also be those who say they are Jews and are not the words of Christ, but are the synagogue of Satan, all true Judeans converted to Christianity by the time this was written. So the providence of God in effecting the blindness of Israel through the hand of his own enemies is perfected in this. But if you will not drive out the inhabitants of the land from before you, then it shall come to pass that those which you let remain of them shall be pricks in your eyes and thorns in your sides and shall vex you in the land where you dwell. From the book of Numbers. The Jews of today are indeed those ancient Canaanites. The gospel was to divide the wheat and the tares. The ones who stayed behind in the religion of Judea and rejected Christ, they were the tares. And if we know the Jews by their fruits, then we know them because they have recreated Sodom and Gomorrah all around us, once again. They hadn't quite gotten that far at Luther's time. Like Luther, most of God's true saints remain in blindness. 
We must pray for the time that the blinders shall fall from the eyes of all of the true children of Israel. Someday Luther will be half vindicated and people will realize that the other half, the fact that the Jews are not Israel, will also be learned. Thank you for listening. We will be here next Friday with 1 Corinthians Part 10 and our continued presentation of Paul's epistle. We'll be here next Saturday with Pastor Mark Downey, Walking the Walk, Part 3. Tomorrow afternoon, Sven Longshanks, Christogenia Europe, and the Phoenicians. Thank you for listening, and good night. And I'm sorry about the squeaky chair. I really can't help it.